You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Let's begin with some prayer. Let me take this off. Father, thank you for this word you have provided. And I pray you would break it open now, O Lord, like the loaves and the fishes, and distribute it not only to the people in this room, but to all who might hear this word. That it would go forth to nourish us in our faith and knowledge of you, to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, a brief review from last week. And if you weren't here or did not hear last week's lesson, Carolyn spent some time talking about what the wilderness was in the Old Testament. Where is it in the Old Testament? Why is it there? And what is the wilderness for in the Bible? Those big themes. She described for us last week to remind you what the wilderness was not. The wilderness experience is not punishment. We tend to think it is. It is not a punishment from God. And she reviewed for us some wilderness times that illustrated that. She started with Noah. We know that Noah was a righteous man. For him to be on a boat for 40 days is in a sense a wilderness. It was not punishment. He was obeying the Lord. She then described Hagar's two times in the wilderness. She talked about Jacob. She talked about Moses. And she talked about Elijah. All wilderness times which actually served to deepen the main character's faith and experience and knowledge of who he was and who the Lord is. So those were... um, Some of the things we saw happen in the wilderness, we know typical descriptions of wilderness is when your ordinary markers for life are no longer there. Your supports are not there. We know the wilderness is a stark time of hunger, maybe spiritual hunger, thirst, deprivation. You cannot get out of the wilderness on your own. That's a principle to remember. You cannot pull yourself up and get out of the wilderness. could be a depression. In the New Testament, I want us to see also that the experience of the wilderness is not a lesson in how to handle hard times. It's not instruction. We don't follow Jesus as an example of what to do in the wilderness. They're not lessons in courage or good works or suggested techniques. So, the wilderness is basically... A hard place that strangely serves to further establish our identity as God's beloved alone. We are no longer the sum of our achievements or failures, possessions, or reputation. Through God's work, we are changed by the wilderness. The theme that Carolyn and I have chosen to outline this talk are basically three phrases that she mentioned last week that are the outline. The first one is um, receiving identity before the wilderness. Identity. The second one is recognizing authority. The authority you hang on. And the third one is realizing purpose. You're going to hear that theme. You heard it last week. You'll hear it today, and you'll hear it again next week. Receiving your identity, recognizing your authority, whose authority you count on, 
and realizing your purpose. Carolyn began last week with the temptation story in Matthew, very similar one in Luke. The third one is in Mark, although it is very much shorter. I'll begin by reading uh, today the Luke's version or story. Luke chapter 4. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, To you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given, it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. And he took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. The word of the Lord. Yes. Stephen Covey is known for saying, begin with the end in mind. So that's where I want to start today. If you notice the last verse in that passage said what? It said that when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. We know that Jesus successfully resisted Satan in the wilderness. We also know that this is not their last battle, although it is clear who has the higher authority. So what happened to Jesus in the wilderness? First thing I said a minute ago, receiving identity. Now, context when you read scripture is incredibly important. And the context of this experience comes immediately after the baptism by John in the River Jordan. In Matthew, you go from the last verse of chapter 3, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The next verse says, and Jesus was led into the wilderness. Similar in Luke. So what we notice from this is that Well, let me back up. What Tyndall tells us about this is, although Jesus had no need for a baptism of repentance, he saw sinners flocking to John's baptism and decided to take his place with them. At the outset of his ministry, he publicly identified himself with the sinners he came to save. Jesus was both human and God. 
And at Jesus' baptism, God proclaims this identity. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Or as another writer states, it is more accurate to understand this as saying, this is my beloved son on whom my plan of salvation for mankind is centered. So right there in that, you hear identity, authority, and purpose. Our own identity in Christ is not earned, but given. When we believe and receive Jesus as God's incarnate Son, we are no longer servants but heirs with Him. We are pleasing to Him as well. In Romans 8.16, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God, fellow heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Galatians 4, 6 declares, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. After receiving this resounding proclamation of identity, Jesus was led. In fact, Mark says he was compelled by the Spirit to go into the wilderness. And this happens right before the launch of his ministry. That's important. So, the shock may be for us, and our experience for us may be that we receive an identity as God's beloved, and yet we're sent right into the wilderness. That's hard. At that time, we may begin to doubt God's love and goodness because of this wilderness, thinking that he is loving us less because things are hard. Rather, then realizing the hardship we are facing could be the tools of his exposing, forgiving, liberating, and transforming grace. Two primary things for us to see about this context again. First, remember I said we're between identity baptism and we're before ministry, right? That's where this experience happens. Jesus' first order of business was to engage the source of evil directly. You thought about that. First order of business after his baptism is to go immediately into this battle. We often hear his first miracle was the wedding at Cana, and that's true. But I think the fact that he walked straight into the wilderness, compelled by the Spirit, to engage in this battle is a profound indication, perhaps a miracle, the statement of his primary purpose for us. To reveal his authority and ultimate victory over the accuser. Uh, Sneak peek ahead to next week. Carolyn and I realized as we were working together this week, we remembered Mark. And when Jesus goes in, it says, if you're going to go into a house, you bind the strong man first, if you remember that story. Well, in a way, this is what we're seeing happening before Jesus enters the house. But stay tuned. She's going to just 
open that up for us next week. Thank you, Carolyn. All right. The, um, as man and God, Jesus engages evil and allows himself to be tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Now, how does that happen? Even though it hints at the final defeat of Satan on the cross. The expression, again, I'm quoting Tyndall, Jesus was led up of the Spirit indicates it was the divine will that Jesus, now more fully conscious of his sonship and fully aware of his vocation to be the ideal servant of God, should be tempted to be disobedient to the implications of that vocation. And by overcoming such temptation, should be able to embark upon such a ministry which was to have its climax in obedience on the cross. Okay, so the first order of business, engage Satan directly in the wilderness. The second thing to notice before we actually launch into the three questions is that, yes, Jesus would experience temptation as we do. The temptation at our very core level to take matters into our own hands. We're going to see that's ultimately what it is. To do what we think needs to be done to get what we want or what we think we need. Yes, tempted in every way as we are. Uh, you know that Andrew Pearson's been recommending this book called Gentle and Lonely. Lowly, thank you, that Dane Ortland has written. And I want to quote a passage from that that really relates to this here. It's um, one of the lovely things about that book is he's very easy to follow. But what about our sins? Should we be discouraged that Jesus cannot be in solidarity with us in that most piercing of pain, the guilt and shame of our sin? No, for two reasons. One is that Jesus' sinlessness means that he knows temptation better than we ourselves. As C.S. Lewis made this point by speaking of a man walking against the wind, once the wind of temptation gets strong enough, the man lies down, giving in, and thus not knowing what it would have been like ten minutes later. Jesus never lay down. He endured all of our temptations and testings without ever giving in. He therefore knows the strength of temptation better than any of us. Only he knows the cost. Through this testing, and as an aside, temptation is often better translated testing, Jesus also learned at a deeper level of his unique identity of being both God and man. <clears throat> he would recognize, perhaps even more deeply, the source of his authority, power, both in the Word and as the Word that brought salvation to all. There again, you can hear it. Identity, authority, and his purpose to bring salvation to all. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Now let's get... Closer and get a little more personal, perhaps. <clears throat> Temptations are as old as the snake in the garden. 
We know that. Consider an area in which you may be feeling tested or perhaps tempted right now. I bet you can come up with something and no, I'm not going to ask. It may be an inner temptation, simply a nagging and persistent resentment or anger at someone in your life. You may not long to see them suffer, but you at least long to see them vanish, perhaps. Or it could be profound circumstantial suffering. These are not simply times like the story of the little boy who is standing in front of the fruit stand and there's a basket of apples that looks wonderful and he's standing there and looking at him and looking at him and the shopkeeper comes out and says, little boy, are you trying to steal an apple? And the little boy says, oh no, sir, I'm trying not to steal an apple. Those are, it's, it's a little bit um, more profound than that. And we get to that. So now we're going to look at the questions how they expose our own areas of temptation. Number one, if you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Hungry? Yes. Turn the stones into bread. There's no doubt about his ability here to do so. You notice you and I are not tempted to turn stones into bread because we know we can't do it. We're also not tempted to throw ourselves off a high tower just to prove how grand we are. We'll get to that in a minute. The fact that it says Jesus was tempted exposes the fact that he did have the power to do so. But whose voice was telling him to do this? What authority was telling him to do this? We often hear lots of advice from various sources, but we may need divine wisdom to evaluate the counsel that we receive. Real temptation goes deeper than simply satisfying an immediate desire. Satan tempts us with the lure of using our own will to fix it, to force a solution. The father who called Jesus and submitted him to temptation would in his own good time supply the physical necessities of his son. The duty of Jesus was to be obedient to that call and not to decide for himself the manner and the timing in which his fast would be ended. We will see, or we do see, that the words Jesus used to answer Satan come from Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book of the Pentateuch. These were Moses' last words at the end of the wilderness time before heading into the promised land. So do you see parallels in the context, identity's been proclaimed, wilderness experience has been endured, and they are getting ready to launch into ministry or the conquering of the, and, and heading to the promised land. Deuteronomy 8, 1 through 3. This whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. What is that about? That's referring to the manna that we learned about in Exodus. What was manna? Well, actually, a little trick is the word manna literally translated came from, what is it? That's where the word manna came from. What is this stuff? When they were in the wilderness and they were not eating and they were hungry, it was the bread God sent from heaven to the ground, that white flaky stuff that sustained them day after day after day after day. And the other thing we know about manna is you couldn't store it up. It had to come to you fresh, and it came for the day. That's a great lesson in God's provide His provision in the moment that we need it. And we even refer to this, give us this day our daily bread in the Lord's Prayer. Um, so, manna was unfamiliar. It was the daily bread. John 6, verses 50 and 51. This is Jesus talking. This is the bread that came down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Just the verb tenses are astonishing there. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. There are lots of references to the word of God being the bread which we take in. Ah, get to that in a minute. Jesus was um, fully able to turn the stones into, into bread. That would satisfy a temporary need. But Jesus, there was no need to do so because Jesus was and is the rock that was split to provide water and the bread which was from heaven, given once and still given to us. You can go through verses in Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Psalm, Job, Revelation, and multiple other places that refer to this. And I pulled out Jeremiah because it's a little less familiar. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and a delight of my heart. For I am called by your name. That's Jeremiah. Take these words and eat them. It is the bread. So it's the word. Totally confused? The second question Satan had for Jesus, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down. What is that about? And he quotes Psalm 91. Throw yourself down. Do we desire validation of God in our life? Evidence? If God really loved me, he would certainly do this miracle, remove this pain that I am in. Give us a sign, the people demanded to Jesus. And if you were really God, you'd get down off this cross, they would say later. This reveals our lack of trust and our trust in things seen rather than unseen. It is important to remember in this particular place what Augustine said. 
and pointed out that Satan can do no more than suggest. Only the tempted person can perform the wrong act. Throw yourself down. Satan quotes Psalm 91, as I mentioned, twisting it to suit his own purpose. Some of his tactics never change, do they? We saw that in the Garden of Eden. Jesus rejects this by appealing to the real meaning, which is it is not for man to test God, even if that man is the Son of God incarnate. The third challenge or question, power. Satan simply suggests, all of this I will give to you, all the authority, all the kingdoms. Now, this could be justified. It is a good thing. Jesus is being offered something greater than the Roman Empire. Think of the justice and the mercy and the lack of hunger. All of those things he could do, he could bring about a kingdom greater than any other. A legitimate aim. But... It would mean compromise. It would mean turning his back on his calling. For what was Jesus' calling? His kingdom was of a very different kind. He had already identified himself with sinners. I'm quoting from Tyndall again. The sinners he had come to save. That meant the lowly path, not that of earthly glory. It meant a cross, not a crown. To look for earthly sovereignty was to worship wickedness, and Jesus decisively renounced it. Once again, he appealed to the Bible, the Word, in Deuteronomy 6.13, pointing out that the worship of God is exclusive. None other is to be worshipped than he. Again, the temptations that Jesus gives us are suggesting shortcuts to the ultimate goal. Not usually a good idea. You and I don't have the chance to set up a world empire, but it is the underneath temptation that is perhaps similar, familiar. Perhaps all I want is just a little bit more. Perhaps all I want is the land next to mine. (laughs) It is said that our fear is birthed, either in being afraid that what we have will be taken away from us, or in the fear that we won't get what we really need or want. Both of these fears, our response is to find a God that we think will provide those things in our way and in our time. Protect those things we think we need. We do that because we doubt the goodness and the power of God. 1 John 2, 16 through 18. We are implored. Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Whoever does the will of God 
abides forever. Jesus urges us not to love the things of this world because they are passing away. He urges us to love to do his will because that is what will last forever. Do you hear the love for you in this passage? As a loving father might urge a young adult child to remember the things that matter, such as relationships, family, primarily the Lord. John 6, 39 and 40, the same section. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. We could look at all of these questions and see that underneath, the tests are about revealing whose will it is that we are seeking to fill. And Jesus felt this as well. He felt it in the wilderness, and you can probably think of a time about three years later, he also felt it intently in the Garden of Gethsemane, struggling with what was to happen that weekend. But he comes to the end of his prayer saying, Not my will, but thine be done, O Lord. So, what does this mean for us? First, first, recognize that Jesus in the story was alone in the wilderness. Therefore, the only way we can know this story is because Jesus told it himself at some point. Now, that is a scene to imagine. So, let's do. At some point, one of Jesus' followers may have wanted to talk to him privately, sharing some personal questions, maybe despair, maybe some suffering or struggle. You can put yourself in that scene, sharing and speaking from your pain to this capital S, someone who has drawn up the seat next to you to listen and to hear him say, I know how you feel. I have been there too. You are not alone. He tells you about that time he was encouraged to quit too or to find a quick way out, to seek a solution outside of God, the Father, and his will. The difference is Jesus himself is not trapped in this hole of sin with us. He alone can pull us out. His sinlessness is our salvation. He is our sinless high priest who does not need rescue but provides it. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. But since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 
Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. As I've mentioned, temptation is a suggested shortcut to the highest to which we aim, not towards what we understand as evil, but towards what we understand as good. Temptation is something that completely baffles us for a while. We do not know whether the thing is right or wrong. Because we are born into self-centeredness and self-serving, we are continually tempted to claim an identity that we don't have to be God for our own purposes and authority that we don't have. What is our hope in this? Let's go back. Identity, authority, purpose. Wilderness is a place of opportunity, a hard place, as I said, that strangely serves to further establish our identity as God's beloved alone. God does not save us from temptation. He saves us in the midst of temptations. That's Hebrews 2.18. Paul Brand and Phil Yancey wrote a book that is one of my favorites called Pain the Gift That Nobody Wants. Paul Brand was a very famous physician that treated leprosy patients, and you may be familiar with the name Phil Yancey, a very um, noted author. Leprosy destroys you because it prevents you from feeling pain. In some ways, the gift of the wilderness is the gift that we don't want. Yet, when all is stripped away in the wilderness times, perhaps you can see more clearly who you are, what it is you hold on to, Or rather, you realize then who it is that is holding on to you because you simply cannot hang on anymore. This is good news because it is the end of trying to maintain that house of cards we so desperately try to rely on. You know in the wilderness that circumstances cannot be counted on to provide significance or security. You may realize that your former identity Um, authority and purpose are not reliable or secure. Perhaps you learn that you are called to something greater. Austrian neurologist and psychiatrist Auschwitz camp survivor Viktor Frankl, whom many, if you don't know, write that name down or ask me later, wrote a book called uh, Search for Meaning... Man's search for meaning. Thank you. It's, it's amazing to Google him. You can still find interviews on YouTube of him. He's been dead now for, for a while. A couple of, oops, sorry, a couple of things that he said that are just quotes I pulled out. What is to give light must endure burning. In some ways, suffering ceases to be suffering at the moment it finds meaning. Life is never made unbearable by circumstance, but only by a lack of meaning and purpose. 
He also said, and I believe he's quoting Nietzsche, you may know better, man can live with any how if he has a why. And what we can hear in our wilderness times is God's word of meaning and purpose to us. Um, 2001, I believe, I was in a room in New York City by myself. I was, it is not a New York fancy room. Army cots, two of them. Nothing on the walls. Almost a concrete block building. A light bulb hanging from the ceiling. And I am living in this room. And the reason is, it was given to me by New York University Epilepsy Center. Our third child, son Catlin, was having surgery yet again right across the street. And this goes on for a long, this particular thing was two weeks and they provided a room for me where I could run back and forth um, no matter what time of day at night. So I was grateful for the room and it's a dormitory that the residents were not using at the time. And I was alone in this building, by the way. Nobody else was there, just the time of year. Catlin was at home juggling his job and, and we had three others. So at this moment, this happened to be a really bad moment for Catlin. He was in the middle of two brain surgeries. They had opened him up, put wires on his head. He was literally plugged into the wall for, I don't even know how long, a long, long time, a week maybe, as they were tracking the seizures. And we'd had a rough, they'd taken him off all medication. He's on video, audio monitoring 24 hours a day as they are watching him. And it's a tiny little recovery room. We have a, a roommate here and one over here and a nurse there 24 seven. So they sent me home to get some sleep. We had had a, a rough evening and I honestly did not know if my son would live through the night. And, um, this is one of my wilderness times. I thought I would just share with you because it really felt it's dark. Nothing is familiar. I have none of my normal props around me. Um, and it's late. So even my dearly closest people, I'm not going to call it three in the morning. Well, I have, <laughs> but <laughs> yes, you don't normally do that. So I'm on my knees and praying and at that moment for me, it was as if God said, what is the one thing you know about me to be true? And what is the one thing you most fear? So I start with my fear. God, I'm afraid young Catlin's going to die. Okay. What else? I'm afraid of what'll happen to me if he does. How, how will I, how will I live? And then the third thing I realized I was afraid of was, I am afraid for my son to be alone at the moment of death. I am really afraid for how alone he's going to be. Because that is the ultimate wilderness, my friends, is then. And um, then, then, here again, I keep picturing that naked light bulb hanging from the ceiling. But the, um, then God says, okay, now, friend, what is the one thing you know to be true of me? And I know, I know that God has promised me he will never leave me. 
That is the truth that I received at that time. Now, there have been other times I've received different truths, but it goes back to what do you know to be true about me? And I encourage you to find that thing in your core, in your gut. I am sure I'm almost out of time. I'm so sorry. Um, I have a present for you. If I can reach it. There. <laughs> Um, these are hymns, two hymns for you to take with you. This will help you in the night if you can't think of that one word. All right, let me move on. Um, the wilderness is not the last word. You are beloved. You are forgiven. Those are all suggestions. Two hymns. A mighty fortress is my God, is our God. Read the words. The other one is he will hold me fast. That's the one that Zach Hicks has brought us. Deuteronomy 8, 14 through 16. Hear this, O people. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there is no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock and fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. He brought us out. He led us through. He gave us water and fed us that he might humble us and test us to do us good, that he might confirm his covenant. God is the way, the truth, the life, the living water and the bread for our salvation. He has given us an identity. He is our authority in the wilderness that we can count on. And he gives us the meaning and the purpose from which we go forth. Identity, authority, purpose. There is one verse in the New Testament, they're all, but to me, where this is familiar, I'm closing. John 1.12. To all who received him, who believed on his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And for that we say, thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, we are bewildered when we are in the wilderness. Thank you that you have been there before us. Thank you that you conquer the wilderness, you created the wilderness, and you provide in the wilderness. And, oh, Lord, take the words this day and send them out in the way that you know they need to go. We thank you for your word. In Christ's name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.